It's Friday, everyone. It's Friday. We made it. We made it. We, made we, are, it. we are, you can tell, we're happy for the weekend. Um, but thanks for being with us today and all week. We are so happy to have Audie Cornish. It's good to be here. Making our morning. It's going to be a fun day. Let's start with five things to know for this Friday, April 28, 2023. Former Vice President Mike Pence has testified in Jack Smith's January 6th investigation. We're told that Pence testified before that federal grand jury for more than five hours. New overnight, two Apache helicopters crashing in Alaska during a training mission. Three Army helicopter pilots are dead. One was injured in the crash. Also today, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation set to be released. The data could be critical in determining what the Fed does next with rate hikes. Also, tributes and reflections are pouring in for Jerry Springer. The legendary talk show host lost his battle to cancer at the age of 79. Also this morning, Roll Tide. I'm so happy to say that. I was so happy to watch this last night as the Carolina Panthers selected Alabama quarterback Bryce Young as the number one pick in the NFL draft. Bama also producing the third and 12th picks in the first round. Much more to talk about with that. Scene of this morning starts right now. So I know one thing about the draft last night. Which is? Which is not even who the Vikings drafted. It's how Alabama, the teammates, responded I know, when he was I the know, first draft because it's never happened before there. It's so, it, Nick's in the modern era, Alabama has not had a first-round draft pick. It's the first time Nick Saban has had it since he's a coach, which is kind of hard to believe given uh, so many NFL Alabama players have gone on to the NFL. But I'm telling you, okay, obviously Bryce Young is amazing. There's a reason he was number, mm-hmm. the number one pick. But as a human, he is also has this just amazing off the field oh, reputation, that. and he's very humble. And it's just it's lovely to see him him succeed and have that moment that he did last night. I just love your energy around this. I, <laughs> I mean, know. this is the most excited I've ever seen you. Definitely outside oh, well, well, an election come. night, basically. I know. I was emailing the show last night while we were, I was on a plane back, and I was like, "Can we please put this high up on the show?" I know. And it's first for you. Yep. Um, also, this obviously huge news in on the political front: historic testimony from Mike Pence, Donald Trump's own former vice president testifying before a federal grand jury about the former president's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. This is the first time ever, in modern history at least, that a vice president has been compelled to do this. Pence is now the highest ranking official from the Trump White House to be questioned by the special counsel, Jack Smith, in that probe. A source tells CNN Pence testified for more than five hours. He could be a crucial witness. We already know he rejected Trump's demands to block the certification of Joe Biden's victory on January 6th. We've heard testimony that Trump chewed him out in that heated phone call on the morning of January 6th. These are actual photos of Trump making that call in the Oval Office. And then we all watched as a horde of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol that day. Pence was forced to run for his life, hunkering down in a secure underground location. So let's begin here this hour with our senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polenz. Caitlin, good morning to you again. Historic, right? We say that a lot, but this really, really is. And what is also notable is that after trying to resist a subpoena, after court attempts by Pence and Trump, he had to talk and This is a first-hand account. It's not second-hand from his aides. It's a first-hand account. 
Right. So, Poppy, this was not something that was necessarily a surprise because Mike Pence had been saying he was willing to testify. It went through the court system. We got the order on Wednesday night that said that the appeals court was not going to let Donald Trump block his testimony anymore. But there was still so much anticipation around this uh, because this is a moment to mark for a lot of reasons for the investigation. And then also when you look back at criminal investigations around uh, the presidency, there never has been a vice president forced to testify uh, against or about the president that they serve next to. And so this was really uh, an unusual day. There was a lot of uh, anticipation around the courthouse specifically yesterday. We, we do understand now that Pence came in pretty early in the morning uh, before nine. He was there essentially the entire day, but we never saw him. We never saw his lawyers. He was with that secret grand jury testifying for more than five hours. So they got to ask him a lot of questions. Prosecutors got to probe a lot about direct conversations uh, he would have had with Donald Trump and other things he would have witnessed leading up to January 6th. And so that is really a significant moment for the investigation itself. They've been seeking this testimony for a long time. I know that he um, said after the court ruled in his argument that, you know, I was ahead of the Senate uh, in, in that day, and so I can't answer questions because of the speech or debate clause in the Constitution. He, he uh, said that that was sort of a win from the court for him, meaning he couldn't answer some questions. Do we know the extent? I, I, I know it's a secret grand jury, so probably not, but to questions he couldn't be asked or answered yesterday? Uh, we do a little bit just because of the reporting we've done about how the court rulings played out here. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what was asked or what he said in the grand jury, as you noted. It is a secret proceeding. And his team isn't even acknowledging right now that he has gone in mm -hmm. uh, and testified. Uh, one of his his uh, chief of staff did, a, did an interview yesterday and just said he was willing to comply with the law. But what we have seen from the court rulings previously is that he is protected when he was president of the Senate. So what we believe would be when he was on Capitol Hill presiding over that Senate um, proceeding. But uh, he can talk about any time Donald Trump may have been acting corruptly. So mm. that's very likely their conversations where they were pressuring him. Poppy? Yeah. Okay, Caitlin, great reporting. Thanks very much. And breaking overnight, three American soldiers are dead and one is injured after two military helicopters collided over Alaska. It happened as they were returning from a training flight nearly near Haley, which is about 100 miles south of Fort Wainwright. And that's where the Apache helicopters are based as part of the 1st Attack Battalion, 25th Aviation Regiment. It's the second deadly military helicopter collision in two months. In late March, two Black Hawk helicopters with the 101st Airborne Division crashed during a training mission near the Kentucky-Tennessee border. At that point, nine soldiers were killed. Yeah, definitely thinking of them and their families. Also new overnight, the legislatures in two very red states failed to advance restrictive abortion bills within hours of one another. It was conservative dissenters, actually, in South Carolina and Nebraska who helped block these bills. Look at this. Both state bodies dominated by Republicans by a two to one ratio. Both of these areas went for Trump by about 10 points in the last election. But let's take a closer look at Nebraska specifically. A state senator there posted this video after that six-week abortion ban failed by a single vote after one of her Republican colleagues abstained from voting. He had raised concerns about the ban being too early for women to know that they're pregnant. And he warned his fellow Republicans about potential political backlash over abortion bans. 
Then in South Carolina, the state's five female senators filibustered on Wednesday against a bill that would have banned nearly all abortions there. Here's State Senator Sandy Sen, who, once again, I should note, is a Republican. Abortion laws have always been, each and every one of them, about control. It's always about control, plain and simple. And in the Senate, the males all have control. We, the women, have not asked for, as the senator from Orangeburg pointed out yesterday, nor do we want your protection. We don't need it. We don't need it. Quite blunt words there. I should note South Carolina, the legislation there failed on a 22 to 21 vote. Next, we want to talk about another case for President Trump. His lawyers grilled the woman accusing him of rape, asking her why she didn't scream or report the assault to police. Columnist E. Jean Carroll took the stand for a second emotional day in court yesterday, this time for cross-examination. Carroll told Trump's attorneys she was too panicked to scream in the moment, adding, I'm telling you, he raped me whether I screamed or not. I don't need an excuse for not screaming. Carol is suing the former president for battery and defamation. She says he raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room in the mid-1990s. Trump denies the claim, calling it, quote, a scam and a hoax. CNN's Kara Scannell is here. Kara, you've been watching this closely. What else did uh, the uh, attorneys try to focus on during this cross-examination? I mean, the screaming was the most intense part of this cross-examination. Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, asked her repeatedly why she didn't scream, why she didn't scream. She said, you can't beat me up for not screaming. You know, if some women scream, some women don't scream. It was a real intense moment during this and four kind of hours. An old school approach in terms mm-hmm. of cross-examination of a rape victim. Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing that stood out here. It was clear he was going for it. He was going to challenge these details. He wasn't going to wear kid gloves, although he was respectful. It wasn't you know, beating her up type of thing, but he was challenging these points. He also was trying to dissect what happened step by step during this alleged rape, asking, you know, how how did you push off a man who weighed twice as much of you as you wearing four inch heels while holding a handbag and not ripping your tights? So really trying to just question the entire validity of this because Trump's defense is this never happened. You know, he also is going after her motives, you know, saying, asking her, and she agreed. She only went public with the story. I mean, that she said this happened in 1996, yeah. roughly. He's saying, why can't you give us an exact date? You're not allowing him to have an alibi. Um, but asking about these motives, saying you only went public when you decided to write a book about this. Before we let you go, can you tell us what she was like on the stand, her demeanor, how she was able to counter this? Yeah, I mean, she is is somewhat of a, you know, has a theatrical way of speaking. So she is very um, fulsome in her descriptions. You know, she's remained composed throughout the whole time. The only times that we have seen her become emotional was, you know, when she was pushing back on, you know, why she, you know, this feeling of, of, of being attacked because why she didn't scream, you know, and she, but she does dig in at times. And when asked, you know, why now are you coming forward? He's the most powerful man in the world in 2019 as the president, but you wouldn't do it in the mid nineties when he was just a businessman. She said she was inspired by the women who came forward in the Me Too movement and all the women right at the time. Remember, it was when the Harvey Weinstein victims had come forward. And she said that inspired her because she realized that silence was not the option. Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Thanks, Kara.
This morning, some homeowners in the Florida Panhandle are waking up to see the damage left behind from a tornado. This one striking just east of Tallahassee on Thursday with large hail, powerful winds, drone footage. Look at this. It shows extensive damage in Hosford. That's where about 12 homes were just wiped out, flattened. Another 20 were damaged. Witnesses say that one person was also struck by lightning in the middle of this on the pier in Panama City Beach. There were two men walking down the pier and lightning struck the first time a little bit behind them and missed and they kind of hunkered down and then <clears throat> within about five or ten seconds the second one hit and it actually struck one of the men. Officials say that the man remains in critical condition at the hospital this morning. Also this morning you've got 40 million people across the country under the threat of severe storms. At least 14 people killed, including a toddler, after Russia unleashed a barrage of missiles across Ukraine. We are tracking the latest developments. Plus, the University of Alabama has set a new NFL draft record with Heisman winning quarterback Bryce Young. You are the highest player drafted out of Alabama in the common draft era and the number one overall pick. How does it sound? Uh, it's, it's still crazy. Carolina Panthers select Bryce Young, quarterback, Alabama. No surprise, but still an amazing moment there as Alabama's Bryce Young was taken first in this year's NFL draft. It's just the beginning of a very big night for the Crimson Tide recruits, if you're watching, and for the head coach, Nick Saban, who was in his dazzling pink suit. Young was the first of three Alabama players who were selected in the top 12 of the first round, further cementing Alabama's dominance as a destination for future pros. And yes, I can say this with no bias. <laughs> Joining us now is investigative reporter and cultural critic Bradford Williams Davis, who is also a former sports columnist at the New York Daily News. Thank you for being here. I promise this whole segment will not be about Alabama. But, but she will not be able to stick with that promise, so prepare yourself. But I was, like, going on a retweeting spree last night watching this. I was so excited uh, just I to see Bryce Young. No <laughs> surprise, but it's still amazing to watch this. And this also, is isn't it crazy? It's the first time Nick Saban's had a first-round draft pick since he's been at Alabama. Man, that is something else. Right? I know, I, mean, I know. Thanks for it, coming on, though. It's been great. <laughs> I brought myself on to talk about this, actually. Uh, but talk about this as spectacle, right? I mean, NFL still has, like, huge TV ratings. Football is the monoculture moment still. And what was this one like? You know, the draft, NFL draft, like all drafts, are kind of weird because it's, it's a party where not everyone is having fun, right? Like, poor <laughs> uh, boy, Will Levis, right? I mean, he was uh, you know, the, the fourth best quarterback prospect, and he is, yeah, still waiting. He, you know, that is not fun for him. Um, but we're laughing. We're making memes about it. Um, but, you know, jokes aside, I mean, I, I'm always kind of mixed about drafts because, of course, I'm so happy, you know, to see these men who have worked, you know, since boyhood, to get to where they are. And that's and the storyline of the night, usually, yeah, right? With course. each one, they do these little mini biographies. And right, parents, right. You know, yeah. and, and many people, you know, uh, who, who, especially in the NFL, like they've come from really, really hard lives where, you know, where they've, you know, had economic disadvantages that, that forced them, frankly, into football, you know, and, and saw football as a way out. But it's unfortunate that football has to be the way out for so many men, especially so many young black men, uh, especially when we consider the cost of their labor uh, that, uh, that the NFL extracts from you. And that, that's what always makes me feel a little bit tense, even as I'm happy for these people in their in individual situations.
Now, this is going to be a moment, obviously, where people are going on to fame and wealth and fortune, ideally. Um, but I want to actually talk about Brittany Griner, because one of the reasons why she was playing overseas in the first place is because of the pay gap, right, for women athletes. Um, can you talk about what kind of effect her uh, imprisonment by Russia will have going forward? Will other athletes be reluctant to go abroad? Yeah, I mean... Uh, not that I would ever be in the shoes of an incredible athlete like, like Brittany or any other, any other woman who are, you know, uh, entering into WNBA. But um, I, I can't imagine uh, the value of going abroad, particularly in countries that, that may be politically risk, uh, risky, you know. Um, I can't, you know, that would be terrifying. I mean, honestly, and so I, I think that there is going to be a much more, uh, much stronger fight domestically to make sure that there is, you know, a, a true um, pay equity between women or men, or at the very least, like, or I should say the women's league and the men's league, um, or at the very least something that uh, doesn't force people to have to go out abroad to make the most of the talents. That's what WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert has been pushing so hard for, right? And calling on the media partners, et cetera, saying, look, we need we need more equity here. Their ratings are going up, so they're they're getting there. Can we just listen to what Brittany said in this? It's like the first time we've heard from her in this yeah. press conference yesterday. Here she is. I can say for me, I'm, I'm never going overseas to play again unless I'm representing my country uh, at the Olympics. You know, uh, if I if I make that team, that would be the only time I would I would leave the US soil. You you point out how Meaningful it was to hear from her talk about her love of the game. Yeah, of course. I mean, that was the part that affected me the most emotionally in that she started talking about how she missed, like, the exercise and training. She missed doing planks. If you've ever done a plank, no one misses doing planks. But that shows how much was robbed from her in, you know, being you know, incarcerated in Russia. Um, I can't... That gets me. Yeah. But... I th I'm so glad that she's speaking out and speaking so forcefully about, you know, what it means to be detained, you know, what prison, what jails do to you, because there are so many people, not just those wrongfully detained in Russia, who are also struggling to maintain that kind of hope that they can, you know, that, that, she's, that she was miraculously able to cling on to, that they can see their families again, that they can go back to the things they love, whether it is, you know, uh, sports for her or, or whatever kind of, you yeah. know, job or passion you have. And, and so I'm glad that, that her testimony is allowing us to see what prisons everywhere do to yeah. people. Yeah. And she said it was her family, pictures of her loved ones that helped get her through that, that time. Bradford, thanks. Good to have you. Having me. We appreciate it. Especially early on a Friday. <laughs> we are getting new CNN reporting on the 21-year-old who leaked that trove of classified documents what we're learning about the red flags that were missed ahead of this. Also, watch this. He stood up and he assessed the situation and eventually saw that the driver had passed out. The kid you see there is only in the seventh grade in Michigan. He took charge though when his bus driver passed out while driving. The bus was filled with kids yesterday afternoon. 13-year-old Dylan Reeves quickly hit the brakes, steered the bus to a complete stop in the middle of the road. We'll show you more in a moment. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We have news out of Ukraine this morning where at least 14 people have been killed, including children, after a deadly barrage of Russian missile strikes across the country. This is happening just south of Kiev in the city of Uman. A wave of missiles took out an entire residential block of apartments. 
Officials say that at least 10 high-rise buildings have been hit. Many people are still missing as they are working through this and uncovering this. The number of dead is expected to climb as rescue teams are searching through the rubble that you can see here. 17 people have been rescued so far. In Dnipro, a 31-year-old woman and her two-year-old were killed in another series of strikes, according to officials there. Despite that damage, Ukraine's military also says that it has intercepted at least 21 of the 23 missiles that were fired. For the first time in modern history, a vice president was compelled to testify about the president he served beside. Former Vice President Mike Pence testified before a grand jury for more than five hours in the criminal probe investigating Trump's actions after the 2020 presidential election. Pence's testimony marks the end of a long, drawn-out legal battle by Trump to block his testimony, citing executive privilege. Joining us now is CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Welcome. Good morning. So Trump had tried to bar the testimony, citing executive privilege. You can't talk about what happened in the White House. And then Pence tried to cite, like, congressional privilege. Who went out and how did he end up here? Um, neither of them uh, prevailed. Not, neither of those artic- uh, uh, arguments prevailed, nor should they have, by the way. Yeah, um, Pence were... was kind of claiming a little bit of victory there. But... Yeah, well, they were kind of playing for time is really what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and in the end, he did have to come in and testify under oath about a, a very important grave matter uh, before the entire nation. And so he had to speak to a grand jury and sort of tell them truthfully, we presume, um, all of what happened. The strangest thing about it is that this was he was being asked to explain a, a day in which his life was threatened, in which people were shouting, hang Mike Pence and a gallows was set up and people were rampaging through the Capitol and he was running for his life with his family. And yet he didn't want to tell the truth about what happened. Um, that's a real politician. That's somebody who <laughs> is so dedicated uh, to his political objectives that even simple human uh, uh, ideas like let's protect my family. Let's talk about the person who tried to have me killed um, was somehow something that he had to sort of be dragged into court, literally, to to talk about. He has downplayed it some, and he's downplayed the fact whether or not Trump committed a crime that day. Like he said the the comment, I don't know if it's criminal to take advice or bad advice from attorneys. Um, I do think it's interesting to hear what Trump people say about this, because I was talking to some of them yesterday. At the beginning when this fight was happening, they were very worried about this because Pence can reveal something that basically no one else can, which is the one-on-one conversations he had, including that call with Trump that day. But they've seemed to become less concerned about it. I don't know if that's just what they're saying, you know, publicly about it. Uh, the or question they have is how damaging. Other cases to worry about. That's they've got a lot of they've got a lot of legal issues about. on their plate. Well, but yeah. how damaging do you think it could be? I, I think. I, well, look, I think it was mostly defensive, right? Because you don't want, in the middle of a subsequent proceeding, for Mike Pence to pop up and say, "I was there. I was critical. I was in the middle of all of this, and you never even bothered to ask me what happened." So they really needed his testimony, and I think that's really mostly what it was. I don't know that he revealed anything that wasn't in his book or already revealed by the January 6th committee or sure? by I mean, any... They have so much access to other witness testimony. They have things they want to ask him that they've heard from other people, right? Including his aides, yeah. as a matter of fact. And, and, and that, by the way, is one reason you do it, is to make sure that everybody who was in the room at a given time is saying the same thing. Make sure you have a, a good, solid account. So I think the, pro- the prosecutor was, was doing a very, very good job of staying on top of it and making sure they got this testimony. It really sort of buttons up the case in a lot of ways. Can we talk about Nikki Haley? who has already said that anyone over 75 wants to be president should have a competency test. But this is what she said about Joe Biden and this second run uh, yesterday. Here it is. 
If you vote for Joe Biden, you really are counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not um, is not something that I think is likely. It's why I've continued to say we need to have mental competency tests up until the you know starting at 75. She then doubled down on that yesterday with this tweet. Again, basically saying, she said, this is sad for Joe Biden. It's embarrassing for the media. It's a scar on the country because Kamala Harris, it's scary for the country because Kamala Harris is waiting in the wings. Mm. She was talking about controversy over if Biden got this question ahead of time from an L.A. Times reporter. Yeah. I th- I, why, why is she doing this? I, I think that's a little uh, foreshadowing. I, I think um, that, like many of the other candidates who would like to be president, she knows she can't get past Joe Biden. And so... I think we're getting a little foreshadowing of them trying to move Kamala Harris up. Uh, the numbers suggest that she's not nearly as popular. She's a more inviting target. Um, she's going to be somebody who I think they're going to sort of uh, uh, push forward as a specter. Like, oh, I'm really running against Kamala Harris. So she she thinks she may not think- going to make it to me yeah. is just like this a can whole have another happen with, McC- with McCain and Palin. People started to question. If you want McCain, it means you're going to have to get Palin, and that did drive away some voters. Every poll that's been looked at, and there's been, you know, academic studies and the reality that we've watched over several presidential cycles is people do not vote for the vice president. That person is is part of an internal conversation, usually within the party, but it's not in a general election going to make uh, the difference. Um, Again, I I think of it as them, um, and by this I mean Republicans, because she's not going to be the only one who does this. I think they're looking for a talking point. If you can't argue against Joe Biden, you have to find another argument. And that's, I think, where they're and going. Did the White House was pretty blunt in their response. They said they forgot Nikki Haley was running when they were asked about that comment. Yeah, that's a, yeah, Nikki who, right? I mean, yeah. uh, look, she's studying for the wrong test to a certain extent. The person she needs to get past is not Kamala Harris. It's not Joe Biden. It's Tim Scott. She's got a senator, a popular senator from her own state who actually is in office. And so he doesn't have to chase after headlines the way Nikki Haley has to do. So sort of say something outrageous because she's an ex-governor and she's an ex-ambassador. And she's somebody that's not in the news unless she says something outrageous, which I think is maybe what she did yesterday. Errol, thanks so much for this insight. Glad to be with you. Have a great weekend. Ahead, how AI, artificial intelligence, can be a game changer in policing. Watch. What percentage of body camera footage gets reviewed now? A fraction of 1%. And Trulio could look at what percentage of body cam video? 100%. Wow. Vanessa Yurkiewicz with a fascinating report. That's ahead. Police departments across the country are now using artificial intelligence technology to evaluate officers in the field. The program uses AI to scan body camera footage, and then it analyzes whether or not it believes an officer handled a situation professionally or not. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz saw firsthand how this technology works. Officer Dan Janita is on patrol. He has all his tools for the day, including his body-worn camera, which automatically captures videos of his encounters with civilians. Safety first. Absolutely. <laughs> 20 videos a day, over 100 hours a week. His final invisible piece of equipment, artificial intelligence, a program called Trulio, which analyzes what he records. Did you have fears about what it meant to have artificial intelligence tracking your day to day? I did have apprehensions. It is AI. Technology can sometimes have drawbacks. It's not perfect, but at the same time, 
I've seen things play out enough where technology has helped us. And that is what Trulio's co-founder and CEO, Anthony Tassoni, is aiming for. We started Trulio after George Floyd was murdered in May of 2020. How do we prevent this from happening again? What percentage of body camera footage gets reviewed now? A fraction of 1%. And Trulio could look at what percentage of body cam video? 100%. The AI was trained by humans to detect 5 million key terms. I got him in the yard. Like profanity, noncompliance, as well as professional language or explanations. The goal is detecting early problematic police behavior before it turns deadly. I get an email alert every day at six o'clock. Dan Janita's chief, Ken Truver of Castle Shannon PD in Pennsylvania, has been using Trulio for a year. He's also an advisor. These are the keywords that you put in. They are. So stop resisting, custody, arrest, anything to do with the pursuit. I'm looking for high risk things. Trulio transcribes entire encounters from body cameras, but pinpoints the exact moments that need review. Stop resisting. Just relax. Just relax. Not a whole lot of resistance, but it was giving me exactly what I was looking for. And so for you, this is a good interaction with one of your officers and a civilian. It is. The Alameda Police Department in California has been using Trulio for a little over a year. It's seen a 36% drop in use of force by officers, Tassoni says. The AI pointed out risky interactions with civilians, giving officers the chance to review and change their behaviors. What would Trulio's involvement have been in a situation like Tyree Nichols? I feel very strongly that Trulio not only would have recognized, obviously, the event of the murder of Tyree Nichols, but the hundreds of events that took place prior to that. I believe Trulio would have prevented the death of Tyree because it would have detected the deterioration in the officer's behavior years prior. There are 18,000 police departments in the U.S. Just 20 are using Trulio, with 20 more signing on this year, including Aurora PD in Colorado. It will be an early warning system that will help save careers and ultimately maybe even save lives. In 2019, three Aurora police officers were charged with the death of Elijah McClain using excessive force during his arrest. If we see just a little change in the officer's performance, we'll be able to actually intervene early on, get them help, get them counseling, get them training, do whatever it takes to get back on the right track. Back in Castle Shannon, Chief Truver says the technology has only proven what he already suspected about his officers. What has this changed? Anything? No. And, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I want to catch something before it happens. I don't want to be reactionary. We want to be looking ahead to make sure that we stay ahead of the game, ahead of any issues, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Now, the Seattle Police Department was one of the first to adopt Trulio, but in recent months, they've actually canceled their subscription with the AI platform because they had concerns over citizen privacy. We obviously asked Trulio about this. They said that all of the data, all of the video lives on the department's server. So the department is the one in control. And Trulio also said that there is way, there are ways to protect privacy, redacting certain information, making sure citizens feel like their footage with encounters with police officers are being looked at safely and their information is not going outside of the police yeah. department. Except you would need to know the identity of a person, like he brought up uh, Tyree Nichols, for example. You'd need to know the identity of the person to get 
involved in a, a situation. I have so many questions. This is so fascinating. How expensive is it? Can, can departments afford this? Um, departments can afford it if the municipalities and cities are willing to pay for it. It's about $20 to $50 per month per officer. If you're a larger department, it is more expensive, but there are federal funding programs that you can certainly apply for to help offset those costs. But this technology being used by a small group of police departments, but obviously the goal for this founder is to get it to go nationwide. Yeah, and Audie makes it made a good point about it too. Yeah, of course it'll prevent lawsuit costs. Uh, right, theoretically. the cost to pay yeah. for this could be at the end of the day maybe cheaper, more affordable for yeah. some departments who could face lawsuits in the future, as you yeah. mentioned. We'll see if it's adopted on a widespread basis. Vanessa, great report. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. The chair of the Federal Reserve duped. He thought he was talking to President Zelensky. That mm -hmm. was not the case. What we're learning about this apparent prank. I can't believe this. This morning, video is circulating. Everyone's talking about this. A prank video chat involving the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell thought that he was talking to the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Watch this. So how do you assess the policy of the Central Bank of Russia, for example? So they managed to save the rubble. Why? Yeah, so I should say that... Uh... In our system, in our governmental system, it's really the administration wishes to say we're, we're not part of the administration. We're an independent mm -hmm. central bank. A Federal Reserve spokesperson acknowledged Powell participated in a conversation in January with someone who misrepresented himself as the Ukrainian president. But the spokesperson notes the clip had been edited and could not confirm its authenticity. No sensitive or confidential information was discussed. The matter was referred to law enforcement. But just the fact that it happened is wow. Senior business, chief business correspondent, Christine <laughs> Romans, is here with us. Wow, right? It's embarrassing. It was, meant, it was meant to be embarrassing. You know, these are two Russian pranksters who are supporters of Vladimir Putin, who've done this to other people. Christine Lagarde, for example, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. So they somehow have managed to hoax their way, prank their way to the very top. Um, you know, this was supposed to be a friendly conversation, the United States showing its support for, uh, for Ukraine. That's what Jay Powell thought he was doing, but instead he was talking to true kind of notorious pro-Putin Russian pranksters. Wow. And it's all floating out there on it's Russian so media. It's so bad. It makes me cringe. I saw yesterday. I was like, oh, my God. And I know they're probably so embarrassed by it. Can we talk about something else before you go? Because this is a totally separate topic. But this is a headline that really caught everyone when it was the amount of women CEOs compared. It finally met up with the number of male CEOs, not total, named John and James, right? This is breaking the glass ceiling, breaking the John ceiling. I don't know. There are 41, a record high, 41 CEOs who are women. It has taken a long time to get to that number, 41 out of 500. And here's how they stack up. 41 female CEOs finally is more than a CEO named John. There are 23 of those. Tom, Dick, or Harry, there are 24 uh, Tom, Dicks, or Harrys. There are three CEOs named Jennifer. A record high Three. number of Jennifers. It's just, it, it's a reminder. And for the past few years, economists and, uh, you know, observers have kind of go back to this and they talk about, it just shows you how kind of ridiculous it is and how slow it has been for women in corporate leadership. A record high 41, yay. But, you know, breaking the John ceiling is, <laughs> is really kind of a Not sad great. commentary on, on affairs, right? But we talk about why it is. I mean, why aren't there more women leading these companies? Is it because 
the pipeline doesn't. You're talking about the elite companies, right? Small business Fortune owners, women oh, have yeah, been these are the totally Fortune, surging. Yeah, these are the the, top, the S&P, the, these, these 500 biggest, biggest public companies. Um, and is it the pipeline that is not um, that is not conducive? Is it something about uh, people <coughs> hire and promote people who they either know or see themselves in? So if you've got <coughs> men running the show, then the men promote, you know, that way. So we'll see. Christine, thank you. You're welcome. Very, very much. <clears throat> An Alabama woman was in severe pain, unable to move. So she calls 911 and says she was stunned when her neighbor showed up to answer her call for help. CNN's Isabel Rosales reports on how a firefighter went beyond the call of duty. Hey, Miss Judy, how are you? There's a half a century between them. I'm good, I'm good. But a couple of moving boxes and a medical emergency mark the beginning of a beautiful friendship between Dylan Farley and Judy Groover. Tell me exactly what happened. Oh, I just moved here and I've been unpacking boxes and my back is killing me. Judy calls it one of the most painful experiences of her life. Uh, it, it just, it was excruciating. It really was. The then 78-year-old was lifting heavy moving boxes on her own. She's new to Moores Mill, Alabama, so no friends or family were on hand to help. I could step out my front door and see her house, and it just wouldn't make sense to go out your front, be able to see someone in need and then not go help them. Before Judy could hang up the phone with 911, Dylan was at her door. I was thrilled to see him. I said, gosh, you were fast. And he explained that he was my neighbor. As he helped her into the ambulance. I got a key to her house so I could come uh, <laughs> feed the dog and take care of everything later if she was still at the hospital. But Dylan knew his work wasn't done. These days, paramedics are trained not just to answer calls, but to prevent the next one. So Dylan texted colleagues at the fire station and he showed up at Judy's store again, this time with 10 other volunteer firefighters ready to help her move those stacked boxes so Judy wouldn't get hurt again. I, I just, I was dumbfounded. I thought, you know, that that's above and beyond the call of duty. These are strangers to yes, you. they are. But it didn't take long that they weren't strangers. We got to laughing mm -hmm. and... Um, <laughs> Had a good time, really. With laughter and memory shared, she says it was almost like a party. Well, they found a box of booze. <laughs> Since then. Hey, Miss Judy. Hey. Her new friends and neighbors have made repeat house calls. I'm very stubborn, very independent, but I have learned to have patience. And this back deal has really made me aware that I'm not spring chicken anymore. And um, I have to rely on other people. The moving boxes are long gone, but their bond still growing. I don't know how to put it other than just close friends. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Isabel Rosales, CNN, Atlanta. Lovely story there from Isabel. Also this morning, news legendary TV show host Jerry Springer has died. We're going to take a look, a, a look back at the rise to his top, his time at the top of daytime TV. That's next. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
I mean, how many times did you watch that show? This morning, his fans, Jerry Springers, are remembering him. The legendary TV host has died. A family spokesperson announced that he died at his Chicago home yesterday after a battle that he had with pancreatic cancer. He was 79 years old. Before he ever became a talk show host, though, he was a politician. In the 1970s, he was on the Cincinnati City Council before he became the mayor of Cincinnati. He even ran unsuccessfully for the governor of Ohio. But it was that daytime talk show that so many watched and propelled him into the zeitgeist of 1990s culture. What? Who the hell do you think you are? You better stop disrespecting me. You do not get in her face. So as you can see, the show was panned as trashy, salacious, and violent. TV Guide ranked it number one on a list of worst shows in the history of television. Still, Springer always defended his program. Look, it's, it's a, an absurd show. Um, why, it, do you, why do you keep doing it? Well, I told you, one, I enjoy it. And two, there's a part of me that doesn't want to give in to... Snowberry. Yeah, because I will say that the argument against the show is totally elitist. The only reason people argue against the show is because these people don't speak the Queen's English. Springer helped propel the career of his friend and mentee, Steve Wilkos, who worked as security, would break up a lot of those fights you just saw, before eventually getting a program of his own. In a statement to CNN, Wilkos wrote, other than my father, Jerry was the most influential man in my life. Everything I have today, I owe to him. CNN This Morning continues now. It's the first time in modern history a vice president has been compelled to testify about the president he served beside. Mike Pence has likely provided intricate, direct, first-person testimony. This lasted for five hours. It gives you an indication of the painstaking detail that prosecutors wanted to get into. Let's keep in mind, there's no other witnesses to these conversations. Prosecutors say Teixeira could still be a threat. They say he may still have more classified information. Authorities say he had an arsenal of weapons just feet from his bed. Court documents mention his social media posts. If I had my way, I'd kill a ton of people. I think he is a danger to the country and a danger to himself. On the third day of her civil battery and defamation lawsuit, E. Jean Carroll grilled on her allegations that Donald Trump raped her. The most intense moments came when Takapina asked Carroll repeatedly why she didn't scream. As for why she didn't come forward, quote, I was afraid Donald Trump would retaliate exactly as he did. Devastation this morning after seven reported tornadoes tore across the south. It doesn't take long to spin up a brief tornado in the panhandle of Florida. They're able to literally topple trees and power lines like they were toothpicks. They called everyone off the pier due to the lightning. It actually struck one of the men. With the first pick in the 2023 NFL Draft, the Carolina Panthers select Bryce Young, Alabama. He became one of the most decorated college quarterbacks ever. I know you've worked so hard for this whole time. I can't wait to get to work tomorrow and, and start building off of that. Good morning, everyone, especially to Bryce Young. Audie Cornish is here at the desk with us this morning. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you. And Caitlin, so happy for Bama. I know. (laughs) I'm so happy as well. Can't wait to watch the rest of the rounds to see who gets drafted next, where that's going. But we start this morning with big headlines coming out of Washington after former President Trump ultimately tried but failed to stop his former vice president from testifying. 
Mike Pence, of course, appeared before the federal grand jury investigating Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. It is the first time in modern history that a vice president has actually been compelled to do so, to testify about the president that he served alongside. Pence is now the highest ranking Trump White House official to testify in Jack Smith's probe. We know that the special counsel wanted to question Pence about conversations he had with Trump leading up to January 6th. Pence rejected Trump's demands to block Joe Biden's victory. And of course, there was that heated phone call the morning of the insurrection. That's when Trump called Pence, quote, a wimp and another vulgar word, according to White House aides who have testified. Not long after that call, we watched as Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, chanting, hang Mike Pence, forcing him to run and escape to a secure underground location with the Secret Service agents who were guarding him. For months, Pence did refuse to testify in the special counsel's probe until a judge ordered him to do so. As we know, he also never talked to the House Select January 6th Committee. Joining us now is the former lead investigator for the January 6th committee. Uh, with us now is Tim Hafey. Tim, thank you. You have such good perspective on this because, as we said, you were the top lawyer for the work that committee was trying to do where Pence did not speak. So good morning and thanks again. Thanks for having me. What makes Pence's testimony in particular so critical to Jack Smith's probe? Well, Jack Smith's looking for evidence of the president's intent if he's going to bring a criminal charge, he has to prove that uh, President Trump and potentially others corruptly with specific intent uh, took steps to disrupt, obstruct, interfere or impede with the joint session. So direct conversations between the vice president and the president about the vice president's authority, about the prospect of violence on January 6th, about the entire course of dealing will directly bear upon the president's yeah. state of mind. So it's pretty significant that the vice president is, is actually testifying. And so important that this is a firsthand account. This isn't Pence's aides who have spoken already to the grand jury. This is this is the man himself. But the bar for intent is also high. So if you were questioning Pence and trying to help the grand jury determine intent, what would you be asking him? What, what would you have asked him for five hours yesterday? We had a really detailed outline of questions we intended to ask the sure. vice president at the select committee. Unfortunately, we didn't get that opportunity. I would have started with January 6th. Look, he's also a victim. Prosecutors look for victims. That's very important to inform their discretion about whether to bring a charge. I would start with the morning of January 6th with that heated phone call with, uh, with the president. No one else has testified directly about the conversation. The only accounts we got were secondhand. And then I'd want to walk the vice president through his day. Look, at one point, as our evidence showed, he was about 40 feet away from rioters inside the Capitol. That puts a personal perspective on those events. This is not just about the Constitution and electoral certificates. This is about real people who are in real danger. Mm -hmm. So I would think Jack Smith will methodically walk him through his day, and then he'll probably want to ask about all the things the president did not do, did not call him, did not check on him, did not, was not involved in any of the phone calls about the deployment of the National Guard or other things that the vice president was doing to secure the Capitol. Uh, so I, I, there's more, but I would start with uh, with his lived experience mm -hmm. on January 6th. What's interesting about Pence as a witness is he just wrote a book on this, and, or on a lot, but this is part of it. And he did disclose some things in that book concerning his conversations, direct conversations with the president on not just the 6th of January, the days, the 4th, the 5th leading up to it. But don't prosecutors have to go way beyond what Pence discloses in the book to actually meet an intent bar here? 
Sure. Look, I don't think there's going to be any big surprises mm -hmm. in terms of what they learn because the vice president has been pretty forthcoming in his book and in some speeches. And we got a lot of secondhand accounts about the vice president's position and the fact that he conveyed it to the president. But this is a firsthand account. So they'll want to know context. They'll want to get actual words. They'll mm -hmm. want more detail than he said to the Federalist Society in his big speech or he has said in his book or subsequent interviews. It's always different and much more reliable to interview a person to get his or her firsthand information and accounts of conversations yeah. than a one-sided narrative in a book or in an interview. And wouldn't you have to get really at Pence's state of mind? Did he feel pressured by the president? I think the president's words are crucial because yeah. the president's state of mind is what the the special counsel is diving into. But absolutely, again, the, the vice president's perspective, his fear, I think he has said in his book or in an interview that he was frustrated or mm -hmm. even angry that the president didn't reach out to him, right. that he did feel uh, that he and his family were in danger. So those real human emotions, again, keep in mind, he's a victim and that really matters in criminal prosecution. Do you, finally, do you believe that the timing of Pence's testimony here indicates anything about where Jack Smith is in this probe? Would it indicate he's nearing the end of the probe? This probe, he yes, has, a, he has exactly. two. exactly, it's a good question. Yeah. Typically, you sort of march up the chain of responsibility involvement and you would get to su substantial witnesses like the vice president toward the end. That mm -hmm. was how we proceeded at the select committee. We did mm -hmm. not subpoena the president until the very end. We didn't ultimately get a decision from the vice president that he was not going to cooperate until the very end because you want to sort of build up to that by getting as much information that will inform those interviews. So it does suggest to me that Jack Smith is going everywhere where there's potential evidence and he's may very well be since he's hitting these substantial witnesses close to the end. Okay. We really appreciate uh, your perspective, Timothy Hafey, especially given all the questions you guys had ready for the former vice president. Have Thanks a good for having me. Have a good weekend. Thanks. Audie. Breaking overnight, three American soldiers are dead. One is injured after two military helicopters collided over Alaska. Now, it happened as they were returning from a training flight near Healy, which is about 100 miles south of Fort Wainwright. That's where the Apache helicopters are based as part of the 1st Attack Battalion 25th Aviation Regiment. This is the second deadly military helicopter collision in two months. In late March, two Black Hawk helicopters with the 101st Airborne Division crashed during a training mission that was near Kentucky, near the Kentucky-Tennessee border. Nine soldiers were killed. Yeah, just awful to see, thinking of their families. Also overnight on the Ukraine front, at least 14 people have been killed in Ukraine, including children, after a deadly barrage of Russian missile strikes across the country. CNN's Nick Robertson is live on the scene in Uman, which is just south of Kyiv. Nick, I know this is the first strike in or even around Kyiv in a while, I believe since early March. Uh, what can you tell us about what's happened? I know Ukraine had said that they had intercepted some of these, but what else? What are you seeing on the damage on the front? Yeah, the, the Ukrainian officials intercepted most of those uh, missiles that were fired at Ukraine. Uh, Kyiv, first time missiles were fired on that city in 51 days. Here in Uman, some of the missiles unfortunately got through. This is the damage, the rescue and recovery. They've been on this site. The missiles hit here about nine hours ago. If you look up there, you can still see the smoke coming out of the uh, apartment building there. A missile just slammed into this building. 
We know that on site now, and while we've been here, we've seen another two bodies carried out, at least 15 people killed here, we understand, three of them children. We talked to an eyewitness who was one of the first people on the scene here. He said he could hear women and children screaming in the rubble. And I'm just going to walk you through this rescue and recovery operation that's going on here right now. There are fire trucks here that are still putting water uh, on the blaze. And if you follow me across here, David, David's our cameraman, follow me across here. The families here still waiting to find out what's happened to their loved ones. As you come around here, you just get to see how bad the devastation is. There's a line of firemen. I don't know if, David, you can get in to see them behind me, but there's a line of firemen scouring the ground there where that digger is trying to pull the rubble out. This is an apartment building that has 46 different apartments in it. The missile struck here at five o'clock in the morning while people were sleeping. So most of the victims so far, we understand, were all asleep in their beds. There are dozens injured. And frankly, we've been talking to the officials here. They still don't have a real, a real accurate figure of how many people they're still searching for. One of the rescuers we talked to a couple of minutes ago told us they still believe there's another couple of children in there that they're trying to find at the moment. And there's a line of relatives I'm looking at over there, desperately waiting, distant, just beyond that big crane there, desperately waiting for news uh, about their loved ones. This is a slow and difficult process. Of course, Ukraine and the officials here very, very familiar with these devastating Russian strikes. No matter how many of those missiles they shoot down, a couple still manage to get through. And this is the result of it. It's just horrifying for this community. Yeah, you, you hear 21 of 23 intercepted, but look at the damage of what did get through, what wasn't successfully intercepted. It speaks to, of course, when they say they need defense systems for this. But, Nick, I think what I was talking about, I mean, you're, you're talking about these people that are waiting to hear what happened to their loved ones. You can't even imagine what they're going through. This is obviously a residential area. It's, what, 200 miles from the front line of where the fighting actually is? Oh, it's a huge distance uh, from the front line. You're right, about 200 miles. And, I, and I'm looking around. I mean, this apartment building here, we're told by officials, 109 people are registered living in here. But I'm just going to ask David to give us a quick spin around of this neighborhood uh, and you see how many other buildings are when we just look around here. This is a dense residential neighborhood we're looking at here. All around, there are buildings. Thousands of people, thousands upon thousands of people living here. So even hundreds of miles from the front line. And here in this city, Uman, one of the local residents was telling us they haven't had a missile strike here since March last year. So uh, for the people in these buildings I'm looking at, they're probably breathing a sigh of relief. For the relatives, desperately waiting. But the reality for all of them, it doesn't matter where you are, 100 miles, 200, 300 from the front line. You just don't know what can happen next. Yeah, absolutely. No sense of safety. Nick, I know you'll be tracking this. We'll stay with you this morning. Thank you. This morning, homeowners in the Florida panhandle are waking up to tornado damage after severe storms across the south on Thursday. Now, this is Hosford, where about 12 homes were wiped out. Another 20 were damaged. 
And in the Midwest, flooding is the big concern as a huge snowpack melts, causing the Mississippi River to swell and crest. We're going to get more from meteorologist Derek Van Dam in the Weather Center. And Derek, to start, obviously these images are devastating. We're talking about going across this area. Um, What more can you tell us about kind of how this broke down? Yeah, about 50 million Americans under the threat of severe weather today, about 20 million of them find themselves right in that bullseye of our greatest risk across central Texas. This Interstate 35 corridor that uh, connects Dallas to Austin to San Antonio, that's where we have a level three of five. And I want to highlight the wording here, the main threats. Look at that large hail. Can't rule out a tornado once again. Uh, The severe threat in Florida, not as pronounced as what we experienced yesterday. So we're focusing in on Texas because this chance of hail could be devastating. Storm Prediction Center uh, has a hatched area right over Dallas, Fort Worth. And if you recall, it was earlier this week that we saw this monster gorilla hail fall from the sky. And these hazards are on the table today. We get these supercell thunderstorms. They're so powerful in Texas. They've got these powerful updrafts that are a pinnacle of a supercell. Eventually, that hailstone gets larger and larger and larger before gravity wins. Ultimately, it gets so large that it falls right back to the ground in the form of devastating hail that can obviously put holes in windshields and also damage crops and obviously a damage, uh, a threat to personal lives as well. The other story that we're monitoring, the flooding, this slow motion disaster that continues to creep along the Mississippi River. We have 25 river gauges under major flood stage, 400 miles of flood warning stretch the Mississippi River uh, with our crest anticipated across the Quad Cities this weekend. Audie? Derek, thanks so much. Nikki Haley facing backlash this morning after she flat out said President Biden probably won't be alive in five years. Yeah, we're going to speak to one person who is criticizing those comments. Also, late night host James Corden signing off on his show for the last time with a warning for America. Plus, the Alabama Crimson Tide making history at the NFL draft and ESPN analysts will help us break down the first round. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Commissioner about to announce the first pick of the 2023 NFL Draft. I mean, they squeezed that for all that it was worth. They waited as long as they could. The longstanding tradition of booing the NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell was alive and well last night's draft as well. The first round kicking off in Kansas City, which is the home, of course, of the Super Bowl champions. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Alabama's quarterback Bryce Young was picked first by the Carolina Panthers. A huge night for Alabama. Two of his other teammates were also picked in the top 12. Love to see Will Anderson as the Houston Texans also snagged Ohio State quarterback C.J. Stroud as the second pick before trading up to grab Will Anderson at number three. A stunner for Kentucky quarterback Will Levis. He was expected to be a lock to go in the top 10. He fell entirely out of the first round. For more analysis on all of this, let's bring in Ryan Clark, who is an NFL analyst for ESPN, as well as a former Pro Bowl safety and Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers himself. Good morning, and thank you for being here. I, I think for Levis, I mean, we would just say, look at Jalen Hurts. Going in the second round isn't so bad. But when it comes to, to Bryce Young, I mean, I'm assuming the Panthers are hoping he's going to be their quarterback for the next decade. When you pick a guy first overall, you're expecting him to be a Hall of Famer. You go that high in the draft because you're supposed to change an entire organization's trajectory. 
And most times, if you get an opportunity to pick first, that means you weren't very good. Now, the Carolina Panthers were able to trade up into that spot as Chicago moved out of it. But Bryce Young has been a five-star recruit coming out of high school. He's the Heisman Trophy winner at a historic university like the University of Alabama. And they're going to expect some of those same things when he gets to Charlotte for the Carolina Panthers. I think he is one of these players that is so ready for this opportunity. His poise is beyond his years. His execution on the field is very Drew Brees-like, and I think he is built to be a leader of an organization. Couldn't be happier for the young man, and I know that the Carolina Panthers definitely got them somebody that could lead this locker room for a decade and a half to come. That's one of the things Caitlin was telling me this morning, what a good guy he is off the field. And I think oh, you're talking about amazing. a leader. It's, you can't just execute and then be a jerk or get into trouble because that's really hard for your team, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, abs absolutely. And I think that's part of the process as well, right? Understanding what type of family dynamic he comes from, taking different tests and talking to him and getting to know the person. Because when you become the leader of an organization or the face of a franchise, you're going to be put in adverse situations. You're going to be asked questions or asked to do things as leaders of men that most people aren't asked to do outside of sports. And Bryce Young is prepared for that. Mm -hmm. Now, you had this career at LSU before you were drafted. Can you talk about what that night is like if it doesn't go your way, right? If you're the athlete kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. You talk about waiting and waiting and waiting. I was an undrafted free agent. So seven rounds went and my name was never called or my phone never rang. And so when you look at guys like Will Levis, who was expected to go in the top 10 from Kentucky, and you're sitting in the green room with all of those eyes on you and cameras constantly in your face because the entire world, including the networks, understand that you were expected to go. And it's now this entire country who is watching you go through this agony and there's nothing that you can do to change it. It's about getting that chip on your shoulder that that should build. If you're Will Levis, it's understanding that there has to be a reason that no one called my name in the first 31 picks. And you should spend the rest of your career, the rest of your opportunities, not just proving those people wrong, but proving yourself right. Proving yourself right for taking this trip with your family, expecting to go in the top 10. Proving yourself right for knowing that all of those people made a mistake for not calling your name. It's difficult in this moment, but Will Levis should hear his name called today, and many other players will, and it's still a dream come true. It's still an absolute blessing to get an opportunity to play in the NFL, and you have to take it for that, understand why you didn't go where you were expecting to, and put that work in. Yeah, uh, Jalen Hurts, I think, is living proof of that, that it can work out just fine for you uh, as Absolutely. well. We'll see how it can be a motivating factor for him. We'll see who is drafted next. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for your time. Have a good one. Overnight, James Corden signed off the Late Late Show for the final time after eight years hosting. Will Ferrell and Harry Styles appeared as final guests. And there was even a special video from President Biden congratulating Corden. But here's how he decided to close out his show. Watch this. We started this show, we started with Obama, then Trump, then a global pandemic. And, and I've, watched, I've watched America change a lot over these past few years. I've watched, I've watched divisions grow and, and I've seen and I've felt a sense of negativity bubble and at points boil over. 
And I guess all I really want to say tonight is I implore you to remember what America signifies to the rest of the world. My entire life, it has always been a place of optimism and joy. And yes, it has flaws. So many, but show me a country that doesn't. Show me a person that doesn't. Me, you, all of us, we are all trying to figure this out. We are every single one of us a work in progress. And just because somebody disagrees with you, it doesn't make them bad or evil. We are all more the same than we are different. And there are so many people. There are so many people who are who are trying to stoke those differences. And we have to try as best we can to look for the light. Look for the light. It's such a profound statement coming yes. from someone who's supposed to make us laugh. And also, I feel like late night desks are where um, the, the, everyone looks at once, right? It's the kind of the remnants of the like, it's not niche television. We're all there. And that was just a naked play to come together. Yeah, and he is right about the point of when he started the show, Obama's in office, how he's leaving, what the state of U.S. politics is. Of course, that's like one of the biggest influences on these late night shows. So yeah. interesting to see that. Yeah, good for him. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley slamming President Biden's age shortly after he announced his White House bid. We'll have former senator and close ally of President Biden, Doug Jones, here to respond. New overnight, legislatures in two very red states failed to advance restrictive abortion bills just within hours of one another. It was conservative dissenters, actually, in South Carolina and Nebraska who helped block those bills. Take a look at this. Both state bodies are dominated by Republicans, as you can very clearly see here, by a two-to-one ratio. Both went for Trump by about 10 points in the 2020 election. But take a closer look at Nebraska. A state senator there posted this video after that six-week abortion ban in the state failed by a single vote after one of her Republican colleagues abstained from voting. He had raised concerns about the ban being too early for women to know that they're pregnant, and he warned fellow Republicans about potential political backlash over abortion bans. In South Carolina, where we've heard from lawmakers like Nancy Mace, concerns about what those abortion bills could do to Republicans' chances in 2024, there, the state's five female senators filibustered on Wednesday against the bill that would have banned nearly all abortions. This is State Senator Sandy Sen, who is, I should remind you, a Republican. Abortion laws have always been, each and every one of them, about control. It's always about control, plain and simple. And in the Senate, the males all have con control. We, the women, have not asked for, as the senator from Orangeburg pointed out yesterday, nor do we want your protection. We don't need it. We don't need it. She said it's all about control. Joining us now, former Alabama senator and distinguished fellow at the Center for American Progress, Doug Jones, who also just got an award. So congratulations to you. But, you know, we're both from Alabama. <laughs> to see what's happening in South Carolina, to see what's happening in Nebraska, that was a surprise victory for abortion rights advocates in both of those states. Yeah, you know, Caitlin, thanks for having me. It really was. But, you know, kudos for all of them to stand up, especially the women in South Carolina. I mean, I love the statement that I just heard uh, from the South Carolina representative. Because she is absolutely right. This has always been about control. It's always been about 
somebody foisting their views on, on uh, the women in this country. Mm-hmm. So uh, I am, it's, it's happy to see uh, folks standing up for their rights like that and across the gate. And, you know, the, the one elderly, older uh, gentleman in uh, South Carolina, uh, North Nebraska, yeah. uh, he clearly grew up in a conservative way, yeah. but not a, a radical way. And uh, I appreciate his vote. I thought, was, I thought that was really interesting, too, 80 years old. And he said, look, I don't know if by six weeks... Many women are even going to know they're pregnant. So, uh, yeah, I think you make a a very important point. Let's turn the page to what you tweeted about uh, this week, and that is presidential candidate, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, saying this. Let's play the sound about President Joe Biden. If you vote for Joe Biden, you really are counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not... um, is not something that I think is likely. She's not, he's going to be dead in five years? I mean, and she didn't walk it back. Yeah, that's, no, that's exactly what she's saying. Um, You know, that's a combination. And uh, as I tweeted out, I thought those comments were vile. Uh, I think they were appalling. Um, I, I really do believe they're not befitting of a presidential candidate or any candidate for public office in the United States of America. Uh, and there is an element of race baiting in that as well, too. Uh, playing on the fears of folks that uh, might not want mm. a strong black woman as president of the United States. And I think that there is some serious issues. And I'd love to see some of her Republican colleagues walk it back for her, but I don't think we're going to see it. I think they're going to probably jump on board. Yeah. As I said, I-, I think this is a race to the bottom. That was interesting. This morning I was looking for, we were looking for Republicans pushing back against it at all and not, didn't see it. She's also playing on an actual sentiment, which is concerns about the president's age, which we have seen in polling politically. So given what's to come, right, what we're seeing in this kind of partisan attack, how should Democrats argue about this? What is the retort? Well, I think Democrats have to push back on comments like this, for sure. But I also think Democrats do exactly what the president has done and push forward what he has accomplished in the last two years. But does that uh, with deal with the House age issue, right? I mean, that's what's becoming the problem. Yeah. You know, well, look, he, his age issue goes away when you talk about the accomplishments that he gets. That's what people want. People in the, across the United States want somebody who will do things for them, things that they can talk about at their kitchen table. That's what they want. They don't care if somebody's 40, 50, 60, or 80. I don't know. If as long as they're working for the American people. I don't know. Um, I think accomplishments matter, but just in all the polling we've seen over the last five days, there are real concerns among a majority of Democrats about his age. Some even saying, some Democrats even saying that's the number one reason why they think he shouldn't run. You know, Poppy, those polls are absolutely meaningless at this point. You know, people raised Joe Biden's age four years ago, and yet look what he did in the primaries, look what he did mm-hmm. uh, in the election. He got more votes than any presidential candidate in history. Those those issues were raised. They're going to be raised. They're, as, as the president said the other day, it's a legit, legitimate issue, but look what he's doing, look what he's done, and I think people are going to rally around that. I think Democrats for sure are rallying around that, and when you see the alternatives, an alternative of a Republican Party who puts a bunch of uh, artificial intelligence memes out there uh, to counter this, I, I think he's going to be in a really, yeah. really strong position. Mm-hmm. I've always believed that. But, Doug, isn't there a way 
to raise legitimate questions about the president's age, not just Biden's, but also former President Trump. He's only three years younger than him. A, a way to raise legitimate questions about age without going there and suggesting the death of the president in, in that way? Well, I think legitimate questions have been raised. Again, Joe Biden said that the other day. Yeah. It is something that he uh, that uh, is going to be raised. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that you answer those questions with what you're doing, with how you're approaching the job, with how you're approaching world leaders across the country, uh, I mean, across the world. I think that that's how you counter those kind of things. You raise the question. It is obvious. It's out there. And no one can deny his age, least of all Joe Biden. But what he has been able to do, what he is continuing to do, I think speaks volumes and a lot, lot more than the age uh, issue itself, because people are going to look and see what's going on. And at the end of the day, you know what? We've got primaries. Primaries are going to tell the tale. Democrats are already rallying around Joe Biden. They're going to continue to do that. And the alternatives, I think, will bring more uh, independents and more moderate Republicans in, just like it did in 2020. All right, Doug Jones, thanks so much for your time this morning from Miami. All right, next we're going to turn to the issue of free speech on college campuses. CNN's L. Reeve went to the University of Pittsburgh during a protest to ask students and educators what they think. Do you think kids are less able to take or listen to opposing views now? No, I don't think they're less able to listen to opposing views. I just think they take less crap as they get older. Students have been making national headlines protesting controversial speakers on campuses across the country. That is at James Madison University in Virginia. Just on Wednesday, students were demonstrating against a conservative speaker who they accused of spreading hateful anti-transgender messages. This month alone, we've seen protests like this from coast to coast, protests that have led to a debate over the state of free speech on college campuses. CNN's Ellie Reeve caught up with some students and educators at the University of Pittsburgh after they protested an event featuring a right-wing commentator. That's conservative podcaster Michael Knowles being burned in effigy at the University of Pittsburgh last week. Knowles is most famous for this one line in his speech at CPAC this year. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. And he was brought to Pitt by a conservative group to debate whether the government should regulate what the group calls transgenderism. But he was met by rowdy protests outside. Such student protests have sparked a bigger debate about whether kids these days no longer have the appetite to debate controversial issues on campus. Is free speech dead on campus? Um, no. Obviously, he is speaking right now. We are not shutting him down. We don't want him to speak. Hopefully, we can drown him out. We are right now enacting our right to free speech just the way that he is. You can't debate intolerance. If someone wants to inflict harm on you, are you going to debate them inflicting harm on you? No. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. Trans rights for human rights! Trans rights for human rights! There they are. They didn't know. As the debate started, some protesters were removed. Speakers who oppose trans rights have sparked protests nationwide. At universities in Iowa, Utah, and New York just in April. 
Last month, Stanford Law students heckled a federal judge about his record on trans rights. The law school's dean scolded the students in a public letter, but declined CNN's request for an interview. Do you think kids are less able to take or listen to opposing views now? No, I don't think they're less able to listen to opposing views. I just think they take less crap as they get older and realize that hate speech is hate speech and free speech is free speech. And I do believe the two things are very different from each other. These speakers are often brought to campus by outside conservative groups, such as the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and the Young America's Foundation. Then the university has to figure out how to deal with the backlash. Afterward, those groups sometimes post videos of the event in which students are humiliated. It's not a coincidence, right, that these events keep unfolding the way that they do. It's a deliberate strategy on the part of these organizations to try to find a controversial speaker, try to provoke the liberal students into having a reaction, and making sure all of that gets filmed and edited in a certain way that makes those students look as bad as possible. ISI's president told CNN that it has no institutional strategy to provoke backlash, but it picks speakers who are substantial and provocative. Yaf said it brings speakers who engage in healthy exchange of ideas with students with opposing views. I think we do need to step back and say, what do we want out of this conversation? There needs to be some kind of reason to put it in front of people. And I think very often what gets skipped in these invitations is in place of value, you get controversy. More than 11,000 people signed an online petition against Knowles and two other conservative speakers invited to Pitt. The school went forward with the events, saying it upholds the principles of protected speech and expression, though that speech can contradict the school's values. Knowles had been scheduled to debate Professor Deidre McCloskey, who's trans. But McCloskey pulled out the week before, telling CNN that Knowles was not a serious person. Then ISI, the sponsor, offered trans writer Charlotte Clymer $10,000 to sub in. She said no. $10,000 is a lot. Oh, yeah. $10,000 is a lot of money. That would have paid off my car. That's half a year of rent. Have you ever been offered that much? No. Not even close. What does that sum say to you? It says they're willing to pay anything to grow their entertainment enterprise. I don't know why trans folks are expected to accept the premise that our humanity is up for debate. If it were a debate on whether or not to allow racial segregation back into society, we wouldn't have a debate about that. That would be unacceptable. Finally, gay libertarian podcaster Brad Palumbo agreed to debate Knowles. Mr. Palumbo, it's awesome that you could come here on such short notice. Um, how much did they pay you to do it? A lot. <laughs> Knowles, through a spokeswoman, declined an interview with CNN. And despite its emphasis on free speech, ISI demanded media not film more than the debate's opening remarks. But once the event got going, no one ushered the media out. Michael Knowles is a big speaker, and he should be able to speak and have freedom of speech. And sadly, that's kind of being shut down in modern society, as we can see outside. But would you have a panel where someone spoke about whether or not there should be legal murder? No, because Still. because because murder is is objectively wrong, and you're killing someone. But I would not put that on the same scale. As I said about shutting down free speech, I think this is a very good example of the fact that uh, uh, clearly something's going on here. That boom was an incendiary device set off outside the building, according to a university statement. No one was injured, but some buildings were temporarily shut down. Do you think the point of this debate is to try to convince people in this room 
or to convince people on the internet? I think it's both. I mean, the goal of the event is not to make a, some uneducated leftist kid, um, you know, feel like an idiot. So I hope there's leftist people here that ask questions opposing Knowles and are able to do so respectfully. So the protesters burned Michael Knowles in effigy, which is protected speech. It is. I wouldn't do that, though. Why not? It's too violent. It's too aggressive. In fact, it's counterproductive because what they do is they take an image of that, they spread it online, and they say, see, this is what the movement is trying to do. They are going to burn anyone in effigy who disagrees with them. She says this generation is different, but not because it's more fragile. As millennials, you know, you and me, I think that we were taught to stand up for what we believe in, but we were also taught that there is a certain amount of abuse that we need to take in order to push the ball forward. And Gen Z, for them, they refuse to accept premises that are dehumanizing. Why do these debates over rights for minority groups always get converted into debates over free speech? When someone backs you into a corner and says, I don't like your ideas, the easiest thing for you to say is, oh, well, that's because you don't like my free speech. It's because you want to censor me. And it's really the coward's way of, of trying to deal with any argument. Your answer should be, here's why my ideas are interesting and why they're important, not invoking some kind of quasi-constitutional gloss for what you uh, have to say. And Ellery is here to talk more about this. What is the kind of industry of speakers that is taking advantage of this? Yeah, I think it's important to notice that it's not like capital gains tax that is sparking these protests. It's not some scientist with a theory about black holes. Right? It's uh, trans rights this year. Five years ago, it was white supremacy. Um, and so, of course, those issues provoke an emotional reaction because they affect someone very personally. And what the students are trying to say is, like, that's over the line. That's not just a political debate. I am not a thing to be debated. Well, thanks so much for this. It was a lovely report. Fascinating, fascinating. As... All your reports are, Ellie. Thank you very much. All right, a Manhattan courtroom getting a private concert from Ed Sheeran yesterday. Seriously, why he brought his guitar to the witness stand to make his case. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. How similar can two songs be before it's considered copyright infringement? That is what a Manhattan jury is weighing in deciding a high-profile case against British pop star Ed Sheeran. Sheeran took to the stand Thursday and brought his guitar with him to actually show jurors the difference between his Grammy-winning hit, Thinking Out Loud, and Marvin Gaye's classic, Let's Get It On. So we want to play both songs a little bit so you can hear the similarities yourself. Listen. Heard that? The lyrics and the melody of the two songs are clearly different, but it's the chord progression. It's at the heart of the lawsuit, and Sharon argues that countless songs rely on the same progression. That's the same theory that was explored by an Australian uh, comedy group in a clip that went viral a few years ago. They play dozens of songs with just four chords. Here they are. Just pay attention. 
Do you recognise this? Uh, yeah, that is Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And the cast of Glee. Yeah, there's a few more songs with the same chords. Check it out. My life is brilliant. My love is pure. I saw an angel. Of that I'm sure. Well, it's just two songs. Like people kill and people die and children hurt and hear them cry. Three songs. Can you practice what you preach. But just because both songs sound similar, that's not the criteria in Sharon's case. Instead, jurors have to decide if he knowingly copied Marvin Gaye's song to make his own hit. Okay, as someone who knows nothing about music, that's kind of amazing Me to too. hear how it is so well, similar. Well, the thing is, the Marvin Gaye family has sued in the past, obviously, with the Blurred Lines case. Yeah. Uh, we've got to give it up. Right. And in that case, the artists lost. So this yeah. time, it's the musicians who were on the song who were kind of coming at the artist and... It's no surprise that Ed Sheeran brought his guitar into the courtroom to right? try and make his case. I know, what a way to make your case. With the, with the, the Marvin Gaye one, or with the last one, they had to put an acknowledgement on the song, basically a credit to Marvin Gaye. Yeah, that's not where you want to land, right? Like, every artist copies to some extent, as it said, but that's court is not where you want to hash that out. Yeah, Thanks. that's amazing. It was amazing. Our great producer, Sam, put that together. Yeah, yeah. I love Good that. job, Sam. Awesome. All right, CNN This Morning continues right now. Just because somebody disagrees with you, it doesn't make them bad or evil. We are all more the same than we are different. And there are so many people... There are so many people who are... who are trying to stoke those differences. And we have to try as best we can to look for the light. Look for the light. Good message on a final night of James Corden's show. That was um, hope, guys, for the future. Yeah. A little bit of unity. Um, all right, so let, let's start there. Uh, but there's this. In the end, Donald Trump could not stop Mike Pence from testifying. His own former vice president appearing before the federal grand jury investigating January 6th. Also, CNN live on the ground right now in Ukraine after Russian missiles killed at least 16 people across the country, including small children. This is the largest scale assault that we have seen in more than a month. And the host of tomorrow night's White House Correspondents Dinner, Roy Wood Jr., will join us live this hour of this morning starts now. What? Lots of big developments this morning. Here's where we begin this hour. Three U.S. soldiers are dead and another injured after two Apache helicopters collided in Alaska. The Army says they were flying back to base after a training flight. Also, abortion bans have failed to pass both South Carolina and Nebraska state houses. The failure of these two bills could be a warning sign for Republicans on abortion as we approach the 2024 election. Also, multiple red flags apparently missed. The Pentagon under intense scrutiny this morning for giving clearance to the 21-year-old now accused of leaking some of America's most closely held classified secrets. 
Okay, but this historic testimony from Mike Pence is really something. This is Trump's own former vice president testifying before the federal grand jury that is investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We're told that Pence actually testified under oath for more than five hours. Trump tried but ultimately failed to stop Pence from testifying in the special counsel, Jack Smith's probe. Pence himself also resisted the subpoena until a judge ordered him to comply. With more on Pence's historic testimony, the first vice president in modern times to testify about the president he served with, we are joined this morning by Chris Wallace, CNN anchor and the host of Who's Talking to Chris Wallace, who has a very interesting interview airing tonight that we're going to talk about in a moment. But Chris, you know, obviously you interviewed Trump, you've interviewed Pence. What do you make of the fact that Pence is going behind closed doors, speaking with investigators for over five hours about January 6th? Well, it's a big deal because Pence is able to take the grand jurors directly into the Oval Office, into the discussions that the vice president had with the then president uh, about, one, the idea of false electors and, and more importantly, what was supposed to happen and eventually did happen on January 6th was that the vice president in his role as the president of the Senate was going to preside over the counting of electoral votes and the certification of Joe Biden as the next president. Uh, Donald Trump wanted him to find some way to throw out those votes, to delay those votes, to allow the false electors votes to be counted. Uh, Pence, of course, refused. But you're going to have direct testimony from Mike Pence about the conversation that went on between him and Donald Trump. Uh, I think there are a couple of things that are important. One, it's it's the closest you're going to get to what was what Donald Trump said. And more importantly, what was in his mind, because they have to find criminal uh, intent. Uh, and, and I think also it, it, it just shows exactly what was going on with Donald Trump. What exactly was his motive in trying to get Donald, uh, uh, Mike Pence uh, to block the certification on January 6th in the House of Representatives? He was also a fairly reluctant witness, right? I mean, he, he's going there. He's already said publicly he doesn't think the president did anything illegal. Um, so how is he managing this against his 2024 run against mm -hmm. Trump? Well, that's tough. I mean, you're asking a legal question and a political question, Audie. In terms of the political question, uh, Pence has already got a tough situation because on the one hand, he likes to talk about the Trump-Pence administration and to take at least partial credit for all of the things that they did during those four years that a lot of Trump supporters like. But on the other hand, if you're in court and he was an unwilling uh, uh, witness, as you say, it, 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 it certainly to a lot of Trump MAGA supporters, it's going to be seen as a betrayal. Uh, so so that's, a, that's a very tough road for Mike Pence to, to, uh, to, to walk. And it's one of the reasons that you see him at single digits in the polls right now. Hey, Chris, good morning. Before we get to your fascinating interview with Bernie Sanders, just I need to hear what you have to say about Nikki Haley elevating the uh, debate over Joe Biden's age to a whole new level. Here's what she said. If you vote for Joe Biden, you really are counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not um, is not something that I think is likely. It's why I've continued to say we need to have mental competency tests up until the you know, starting at 75. Maybe not elevating it. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it's a great point, Caitlin. Not well, what look, do you think? It, it, was a, it was said somewhat inartfully, as some would say even crudely, but the, the issue of, of uh, Biden's age is going to be an issue in this campaign. There's no question about it. And I've always thought that one way to get for it, in effect, what you're hearing from uh, Nikki Haley there is a twofer. She's attacking 
the issue of, of, of Biden's competence and vigor as he uh, runs for a term that would end when he's 86. She's also taking a shot at Nikki, I mean, rather at uh, Kamala Harris and saying, you know, you don't want her to be a heartbeat away from the presidency. Uh, if, if Biden's approval numbers are low, uh, Harris's numbers are even lower. Mm. And I suspect that you're going to see, uh, maybe done more artfully than Governor Haley did there, a lot of talk during the next 12, 14 months where people are saying, President Harris with a question mark, because there are an awful lot of people who don't like that prospect. Yeah, they think that's an easier line of attack. Well, you actually interviewed Senator Bernie Sanders, who you know once wanted to, to be the Democratic nominee for the president himself. Uh, you asked about Biden's age. This is what he told you. Uh, why is it that not a single leading Democrat is willing to contest that nomination in the primaries? Why do you think I that is? You know, I can't speak for other people, but I suspect it has to do with a real fear of the growth uh, of right wing extremism in this country. Uh, and that is the Republican Party over the last number of years, accelerated by Trumpism, has become not a conservative party, but a right wing extremist party. And this is a party that it, not all by any means, but you have many of the leaders who actually don't believe in democracy anymore. Uh, you have many Republicans maintaining the lie that Trump actually won the election. Uh, you have Republicans working overtime to deny low-income people, people of color, young people, the right to vote, people who defended the insurrection in January right. 6th. So I, the first answer to your question, Chris, is that uh, I, I think there's a great fear in this country about attacks on democracy. We want to maintain So, so you're saying it's more fear of Donald Trump and MAGA than it is enthusiasm for Joe Biden? Well, I think that's half of it. Okay, that's, that was part of his answer, but you also talked about the age aspect of this as well. What did he say, Chris? Well, you know, it's an interesting conversation. Uh, Joe Biden is 80, Bernie Sanders is 81, and I played for him the clip of Nikki Haley that you talked about uh, earlier, where she has questioned whether or not anybody over the age of 75 should have to have a mental competency test. Uh, he pushes back on that and he says, look, each one's an individual. But, you know, one of the it, it gets to be a pretty interesting conversation uh, because at one point I say, well, look, you know, there are people I would submit like Bernie Sanders, who's a kind of relatively young 81. I don't think anybody would question his energy or his vigor. Obviously, a lot of people question Joe Biden's energy, vigor and competency. Uh, and then there's also the question, well, you could be OK at 80. But what about 82 or 86, which is where Biden would be at the end of her term? And, you know, one of the questions I have is it's become routine that presidential candidates share their medical records. Why should it be off? The, you know, sort of the words, we're allowed to know their cholesterol count. But why, particularly with somebody who's older, why not have them take mm -hmm. a cognitive test? I don't know that I think it's so outrageous. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting discussion as well, as always. Can't wait to watch your show, Chris Wallace. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, guys. You can watch um, Chris's full interview. Yeah, tonight it's going to air with Senator Sanders and comedy legend Carol Burnett. So tune in to Who's Talking to Chris Wallace at 10 p.m. Eastern tonight on CNN. Yeah, can't wait to watch that. Also overnight, we're tracking these developments out of Ukraine where at least 16 people have been killed, including children, after a deadly barrage of Russian missile strikes happened across the country. CNN's Nick Robertson is live on the scene in Uman, which is just south of Kiev. Of course, this is the first strike in or anywhere close to Kiev in a while, Nick. And as we were noting earlier, where this has struck and where you are, nowhere near the front lines. 
hundreds of miles from the front lines. And as we were discussing in the last hour, Caitlin, we were saying the body count climbing, it's climbed again. Police just updated us here, 17 people dead, 18 injured, three of the dead, three of the dead are children. Look over my shoulder here, David's gonna zoom in there and you can see the firefighters clustered around the lower part of the building, the first floor of the building there. They're still searching the rubble there. The police say they're gonna focus on that. Now David's gonna pan up and take you higher up in the building there, up towards the eighth floor. There's smoke still coming out of there. And I can tell you a tragic story about what happened there overnight. We've spoken to a lady. Her friends lived in one of the apartments up there on the eighth floor. The husband's in hospital. The wife managed to escape, but there is a 13-year-old and a seven-year-old daughter still missing. The lady telling this was in absolute floods of tears, still missing somewhere up there on the eighth floor. And the police say that's where they're going to go to next. They say they're not going to stop searching here until they've gone through everything and turned over all the debris here. 109 people registered living in this building. And as I'm talking to you here um, behind, uh, behind David, there's a line of people just waiting here to find out what's happened to their loved ones, what's happened to their friends. A lot of emergency workers here. The Ukrainians, sadly, are getting all too experienced about clearing up after Russian strikes like this. 21 of the 23 missiles Russia fired into Ukraine last night were intercepted. This is what happens when just one gets through. And this is the fear that we've been hearing from neighbors here, not knowing if this is gonna happen again. A lady who lived in the building right here told me she heard the whoosh of the missiles, put her kids in the bathtub, put a blanket over their heads and just hoped that they would see the daylight come up in the morning. Caitlin. Just to see the toll of those that don't get intercepted on those faces of the relatives waiting to hear about their loved ones as the death toll has only continued to grow as we've checked in with you this morning. Nick Robertson will stay with you, thank you. We want to talk about Sudan now. U.S. citizens are among those arriving in Saudi Arabia after escaping the fighting between two rival military factions in Sudan. So far, nearly 3,000 evacuees have arrived in the city of Jeddah. And that's where we find CNN international correspondent Larry Madoo live near the Jeddah Islamic seaport. And that's where evacuees have been arriving. Larry, first, can you just talk about how the evacuation process has been playing out? Odi, this is turning out to the main landing point for evacuees from Port Sudan. That's on the Red Sea. And a lot of people are making the arduous journey, sometimes up to 30 hours, from Khartoum through a war zone, really, to try and make it to Port, Port Sudan and then get on one of these ships run by the Saudis to get across to here in Jeddah. And from here, they can go on to other countries. The Saudis say they've evacuated almost 3,000 people, and only about 100 of them are Saudis. They come from 80 different nationalities, including American citizens. Why are American citizens ending up here in Saudi Arabia? Because the State Department guidance, the guidance from the embassy in Khartoum that is now evacuated, is that it's still too dangerous to coordinate an evacuation of private U.S. citizens. So many people have taken that risk to take that journey across the territory to Port Sudan and then make it out here. And many who are arriving here are upset that they feel abandoned by the U.S. government, by the embassy in Khartoum, and by authorities that should have done better, especially because here in Jeddah, you see other countries evacuating the citizens, France, Germany, the Chinese, the Indians, a lot of other nationalities, Pakistan, ETC, and they're either arriving here on the port behind me or at the Jeddah airport and then going to the other countries. So for American citizens, a great concern this morning, Audi.
I'm sure there'll be more questions about that. Larry Madeau, thank you so much for your reporting. Major flooding creating havoc across the Midwest, where the spring thaw from just that record snow is causing the Mississippi River to really swell. Experts say this year's slow rise could create some of the worst flooding there in 20 years. The river has already crested in several towns in Minnesota, like Wabasha, and in parts of Wisconsin, as well as here in Campbell. Adrian Broadus joins us now from Davenport. I mean, I grew up with just whether it was my dad's family in Iowa or our family in Minnesota bracing for scenes like what you're standing in the middle of. Then, Poppy, you understand what people here are dealing with. As the river slowly rises, those anxiety levels also go up. I'm standing on a pedestrian bridge. We are in downtown Davenport. Behind me, there's a band shell, and it's partially submerged. I'm walking across the street area here. To the right, the parking spaces are underwater. But folks that we heard from who live in this community say flooding is expected. It's part part of the downtown of Davenport. We flood all the time and and we, I don't know, they won't put a flood wall up thinking that everybody wants to look at the river. Well, we're tired of looking at the river. It's enough. We've got 22 employees, very hardworking. A lot, a lot of them have been here since we opened. Yeah, so it's hard. And I hopefully we don't lose anybody, but you never know. That was Claudia Anderson. Because of the rising Mississippi, there's a sign outside on her door that says they are closed due to the mighty Mississippi. So right now, what is she doing? She's taking steps to mitigate the damage. Her sump pump is working. She's eliminating water that's flowing into her business because the sewers are also backed up and they are just ready for the river to crest. It's not expected to happen in this area until late Sunday night or Monday morning, according to the National Weather Service. Poppy? It's so striking to see because it was just months ago we were seeing the drought pictures across the Midwest, the Mississippi way down, and now looking at this. Um, Adrian, thanks for, for being there and covering it. I want to talk about politics now because House Speaker Kevin McCarthy believes House Republicans have done their jobs after narrowly passing a debt ceiling increase. But what will happen if the Democratic-controlled Senate sends it back? We'll have Congressman Jared Moskowitz about that and more. That's next. Plus this. He stood up and he assessed the situation and eventually saw that the driver had passed out. That is a seventh grader in Michigan who took charge when his bus driver passed out as he was driving. The bus was filled with kids on Wednesday afternoon when 13-year-old Dylan Reeves, thanks to some smart thinking, quickly hit the brakes, steered the bus to a complete stop in the middle of the road. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New overnight, the legislatures in two very red states failed to advance restrictive abortion bills just within hours of one another. It was conservative dissenters actually in South Carolina and Nebraska who helped block these bills. A state senator posting this video in Nebraska after the six-week abortion ban failed by a single vote after one of her Republican colleagues abstained from voting. He had concerns about the ban being too early for women to even know that they're pregnant. And he warned fellow Republicans about potential political backlash over abortion bans like that one. 
In South Carolina, the state's five female senators banded together to filibuster on Wednesday against a bill that would have banned nearly all abortions in the state. This is State Senator Sandy Sen, who, I should note, is a Republican. Abortion laws have always been, each and every one of them, about control. It's always about control, plain and simple. And in the Senate, the males all have con control. We, the women, have not asked for, as the senator from Orangeburg pointed out yesterday, nor do we want your protection. We don't need it. We don't need it. She says the women have not asked for it. Of course, that comes after just a few weeks ago. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law that bans most abortions in his state after six weeks. It's a move that has polarized some fellow conservatives. Joining us now is a lawmaker from that state, Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz, who serves on foreign affairs and oversight committees. Good morning, Congressman. I wonder what you do make of what's happening in Nebraska, in South Carolina, especially given your home state just recently had the governor sign that six-week abortion ban. Yeah, I think what we're seeing, and we saw it last year in Kansas, is we're seeing, you know, Republicans starting to push back on, you know, the extreme policy that is being pushed by MAGA Republicans uh, across the country. It's going too far. I mean, the Republican Party used to be the party of government out of your lives, government out of your bedroom, and now they want to use government to control every aspect of your life. And so, look, women's Abortion is a woman's health issue. Uh, you're seeing women in this country starting to push back. We, we always told people the Dobbs decision was not about returning it back to the states, it, that they wanted the Dobbs decision because they wanted to get rid of abortion. And now America is seeing that happen. So obviously I'm encouraged to see Republicans standing up and fighting against the extreme wings of their party. Yeah, it was remarkable to see those representatives in South Carolina. Speaking of Governor DeSantis, though, obviously you are from Florida. He's also still in this feud with Disney, where Disney has now uh, sued him over this, saying that essentially he's retaliating against them. Do you think that's going to hurt his chances at trying? I mean, you've worked with him. You know him. Uh, do you think it's going to hurt his consideration of, of running in 2024? Yeah, look, I don't know that the Disney thing is going to be a national issue uh, should the governor decide to get into uh, the presidential race. I mean, aspects are pointing in that direction, obviously. Uh, but, you know, again, I go back to the fact that the Republican Party used to be a party of small government, limited government. It used to be a party of, you know, letting corporations have freedom. And now it's, it's, it's all about using government, using the hands of government to bend corporations to their will. We just saw this with the whole, you know, Bud Light issue. I mean, Republicans used to be the ones that would say, oh, you know, the left is woke or, you know, they, they, we have all this activism. And meanwhile, you know, Bud Light does something that they don't like and immediately they, they, they want to boycott. And so, you know, it's interesting to watch the Republican Party completely remake itself, uh, you know, in the years after Trump for a party that wants big government, a party that wants government in your life, that a party that wants to tell, using government to tell corporations what they can and cannot do. And so we are in very interesting times as we see a new, more extreme Republican Party start to go mainstream. Speaking of what's happening where you are on Capitol Hill, we just saw Republicans barely got their proposal when it came to the to the debt ceiling pass. Uh, you said you joked that the Limit Save Grow Act sounded like it was a slogan for the hair club for men. But but it did get passed. And now Republicans say the ball is in Senator Schumer's court and the White House's court. Do you think it's time for the, the White House to start engaging with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? 
Well, listen, my position from the beginning is I think the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House should always be talking, even if those talks are not productive. You know, the President wants to have breakfast with the Speaker, lunch and dinner, and tell the Speaker his position every time hasn't changed, you know, so be it if that's necessary. But I always think they should always be always be talking. I mean, we have passed a clean debt ceiling almost 80 times since 1960. We've done it almost 50 times under Republicans. We did three times under uh, under President Trump, two times with Republican control under President Trump. And so all of a sudden, there's a change of position. We have to pay our bills. You know, it's funny, Republicans want to lecture students that they don't need student debt relief, that students should pay their bills. Meanwhile, Republicans up here don't want to pay America's credit card. Families don't have that option when their credit card bill comes in the mail, they have to pay. And so, you know, listen, I, it's very dangerous what's happening up here. I am someone who is very concerned that we could go off the cliff because I know MAGA Republicans, the Freedom Caucus is the one unfortunately calling a lot of the shots. We see them continue to take their party up here hostage. They hold out their votes, they hold out their votes. The package becomes more extreme, which means it has no chance uh, in the Senate. And so, you know, look, we'll have to see what the Senate does now. Maybe this goes to conference. But, you know, look, there, there's going to have to be some sort of negotiation so that we're not in the last final days, because even getting that close to the debt ceiling will have catastrophic consequences to the economy. You said you're concerned. Do you think we're closer to a default as a country today? I think because of how much power the Freedom Caucus has right now in the House, I think we are closer to defaulting. To be clear, there are people here in the chamber that want to see us default because they think that's politically advantageous. They want to see us default because they think that that is what their constituents want. Look, you're talking to a Democrat who believes that we should cut back <laughs> government spending as families start to tighten their spending, so should government. But holding hostage the debt ceiling can be so catastrophic. You're, you're talking maybe $10 trillion worth of damage. And by the way, for my Republican colleagues who talk about China, talk about how we had to create a China Select Committee, they want to get tougher on China, they're worried about the dollar, nothing could be a bigger gift to China than playing around with the debt ceiling. You obviously disagree with Republicans and what they've passed, including part of that was blocking President Biden's plan on student loan forgiveness. But it seems clear that you think the White House position, which is we're not going to negotiate, is unsustainable. Listen, Joe Biden has shown his entire career, it's why he's president, that he is someone who will always negotiate, he'll always talk. And so listen, I have faith that Joe Biden uh, and the speaker will sit down and will talk. I just think that, you know, in D.C. we should always be talking. We should never say we're, we're you know, we're, we're not going to speak to folks across the aisle. I don't think that's a sustainable position. But so you say the White House's position right now, because the president has said, I'll talk to him about the budget, but I'm not going to talk to him about uh, attaching concessions to this. And that has still been his position right now, saying he's not going to negotiate. So you are saying that is unsustainable. Yeah, and that's been my position from the beginning. I always think that the president of the United States and the speaker should always be talking. Well, we'll see when they do talk, if and when. Uh, Congressman Jared Moskowitz, thanks so much for being here this morning. Thank you. And as the coronation of King Charles III quickly approaches, it's raising questions about the monarchy in the modern era. CNN's Erica Hill takes a closer look at the role of the royals today for this week's episode of The Whole Story. She's gonna join us live next. The coronation of a new British monarch has only been televised once before, right? When Queen Elizabeth was the, the second was crowned, that was 70 years ago. Now, as final preparations are underway for the crowning of King Charles III, many are asking questions about what this moment, this man, mean in the modern world.
This week on The Whole Story, our Erica Hill traveled to London in, a, in search of some of those answers, meeting with leading British scholars, journalists, and some of those closest to Queen Elizabeth and King Charles himself. Watch this. There is a great deal of similarity, I think, between the Prince of Wales at times raging against the machine and saying, well, I want to do this and I want to talk about that. And by the way, I know what I'm talking about and I'm not afraid to say it. Who does that remind you of? Reminds me massively of Harry. In his book, Spare, Harry writes that Charles had always been discouraged from hard work, he told me. He'd been advised that the heir shouldn't do too much, shouldn't try too hard for fear of outshining the monarch, but he'd rebelled. Is Charles a rebel? Does anyone feel he is? I wouldn't call him a rebel. I think that he has developed a sense of self-awareness and, and gone at things in a different way, but I wouldn't say that that would be, I wouldn't call that rebelling. I think he'd like to see himself yeah. as a rebel and revolutionary. King Charles is not a rebellion, certainly not revolutionary. I, I wish he was, but I doubt he'll do anything to rock the boat. Charles had points when he was absolutely raging against the machine in exactly the same way Harry did. There are so many parallels. Joining us now again, CNN anchor and national correspondent, Erica Hill. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Now, he's taking the throne a completely different kind of commonwealth, right? Yes. Racially, religiously, the demographics have changed. So is there any one view <laughs> of this moment? I think, you know, it, it's such a great question. Is there one view? The short answer is no, because it is a much more diverse country, both in the UK and within the Commonwealth. And as we, you know, as I think we would probably see on this side of the Atlantic, but certainly as we learn from these fascinating discussions that we had with scholars and journalists and those who used to work for the royal household, there's a different sensibility and there are more questions in general being raised about not only what is the role of the monarchy in 2023, a lot of those questions spurred by the death of Queen Elizabeth, a 70-year reign gone, gives people time to pause and think about what does this really mean? But also, and especially among the younger generation, there are more questions about how did we get here? And how did this small country amass so much wealth and so much power for hundreds of years? And are we taking a close look at that history and what it means and how are we addressing it? But will any of that come out in a coronation? I mean, that's by definition pomp and circumstance. It is absolutely pomp and circumstance. And that was part of what gave monarchs their power, right? It was this pageantry and this pomp and this glitter and gold and jewels. And it all made it feel very mysterious and majestic and powerful because you didn't see, sort of like the Wizard of Oz, you didn't see what's going on behind the scenes. So to your point, what's going to change, the coronation ceremony is almost a thousand years old. It's a religious ceremony. It's only been televised once before, but what they are trying to do, and they being the royal family, is make it smaller, right? Because there are the optics alone, the cost of living issues, and also make it more inclusive, that this is no longer just about the Church of England. There will be other faith leaders there. There will be uh, a gospel choir. There will be perhaps a more inclusive service, maybe if we think back to the wedding of Harry and Meghan. That effort is there. I think it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out and honestly how it's received next Saturday. Although people are obsessed with whether Harry will be there. He will be there. Don't worry. Harry will be there. Where he will be sitting, we do not yet know. But Meghan will, will be there. there. She's staying back in California, she said, with their kids. Their son, Archie, of course, his birthday is also Saturday. He turns four, same day as the coronation. So lots to celebrate for the whole family. They're celebrate. just doing it in different places. There you go, Erica. Yeah. Cannot <laughs> wait to see it. Please watch. We, we will. We're pretty proud of it. We will. Yeah, a lot of interesting questions and discussions. Yeah, be yeah. sure to tune in to The Rain Begins, Charles and Camilla on The Whole Story. That's this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern.
And as we wait for that, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation was just released. It could play a major role in whether or not your interest rate is going to go up. We'll show you the numbers right after this. All right, this just in the Fed's preferred measure of inflation just released by the Commerce Department. This could be critical, right, in what the Fed does next on interest rates. Chief Business Correspondent Christy Roman's here to break it down. I think it shows that the Fed's rate hike campaign, aggressive rate hike campaign, is working. This PCE price index, this is in consumer inflation the Fed really likes to look at. It grew only 0.1% um, from February to March. That's good. That's a more normal rate of inflation than some of the terrible numbers we had been seeing. When you look year over year, it's still too hot, up 4.2%, um, but that's down pretty uh, dramatically. It was 4.6% last month, it was 5% the month. So, you know, it's, it's good to see that number coming down here. There's another number that came out, um, the Employment Cost Index, mm -hmm. ECI. It's a quarterly number. I know you've covered this before, too. That shows that wages picked up, though, in the quarter. So here's the split screen. Wages are still rising. That's good. I mean, I, I, everybody wants to get a little more money in your paycheck. That's good for people, but the Fed has been worried that that is inflationary. So on the one hand, those prices are cooling and that's showing the Fed's um, medicine is working, but wages are still strong. Good for people, but will the Fed like that? I'm not so sure. Yeah, we'll see what they say. Also, they're about to release the findings of that investigation yeah. into basically what caused what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? What are we expecting? So we get that at 11. We're also going to hear from the FDIC later today. What happened to Silicon Valley Bank? Did the feds miss something? Or was this just a case of bad mismanagement, a bank that grew too quickly? It grew way bigger in assets and deposits than it did, say, in compliance and risk management, which is bad. You know, it's just banking 101 that they made some big failures there. So we're going to get this is really sort of the postmortem of what happened there. And hopefully it'll tell us more about whether the feds or the federal government is more aware now of the similar problems that might be happening at other banks. We'll be watching First Republic shares And whether today. it is other banks, right? Yeah, exactly. Or whether it was just this exactly. bank. Yeah. First Republic shares are up this morning, but you know they've lost half their value this week. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of behind-the-scenes maneuvering to figure out what happens next for First Republic. So watch that space. Okay, we will. Christine, thank you. Have Bye a good guys. week. You too. Thanks. Thanks. And we are one day away from the White House Correspondents' Dinner. President Biden will be there, and so will comedian Roy Wood. Jr. ready to <laughs> roast Washington's elite. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family. <laughs> who, who you know go to trial and talk <laughs> about the judge? He can destroy you and you riling him up. You about to fight cocaine, man. You don't offer him crack first. <laughs> Uh, Roy Wood Jr. is here in the studio live to preview this big night. Stay with us. I got Yay. both of those. In our fast-changing world, traditions like the White House Correspondents' Dinner are important. I mean, really? What is this thing? And why am I required to not do it? Connie's the one, you know, being very diplomatic in the meetings, you know. Well, that's good. It's great. We're all on the same pattern because at the end of the day, you know, freedom is what we all want. <laughs> the leads will come out like, North Korea said what? <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Hold my purse, Mr. President. Hold my purse. And Fox News is sort of like a Waffle House. Yeah, it's relatively normal in the afternoon, but as soon as the sun goes down... There's a drunk lady named Janine threatening to fight every Mexican who comes in. You can't throw me out. I know the real 
president. It's the White House Correspondents' Dinner, a uniquely Washington tradition. The first dinner actually took place back in 1921. It only had 50 people. This year, it's going to be star-studded. It's going to have a guest list over 2,500 people. It's a rare chance, chance for the press corps to let its hair down and socialize with Washington brokers and celebrities, sometimes gets criticized for that. 16 presidents and vice presidents since Calvin Coolidge have attended the dinner. One who did not, Donald Trump, never made an appearance during his presidency, instead sent his press secretary. In recent years, a speaker, typically a comedian, does roast the commander-in-chief. And this year's roaster is joining us now, stand-up comedian <laughs> and correspondent of The Daily Show, Roy Wood Jr., who we're yes. all hoping forgets Yay. our names by tomorrow yeah, night. You never oh. met us. Yeah, Wipe we, it clean. Caitlin and Poppy, good to see you. Cooper, it's great to meet you. Um, okay, this is how, the weirdest gig, right? Like, yeah. the people in the room aren't your audience. And how do you yeah. practice? It's You have to still remember that regular people are also watching this. That room represents like the 1% of the power and how decisions are made in this country. But the people that are affected by those decisions are watching the program, too. So I think there's a way to honor both, both, like, both audiences. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a gig. And that's what I have to tell myself while I sit and comb through these jokes at one o'clock in the morning in New York. Uh, But it's a good time. And I think it's an honor to be able to do it, because when you really look at the way the power dynamics are set up in this country, very few citizens get an opportunity to have a microphone in front of everybody. Everybody who has stuff that needs to be heard. Now, the important part is that you want to make it funny. I don't think I need to get up there and be just right. Like, there's a humor to righteousness balance Mm. that you have to find within what you're doing. So that's the part you can't do in the comedy club because you cannot go, oh, joke, joke, joke. Oh, Joe Biden and Kamala. Oh, re-election. Also, did you know that journalists are getting locked up abroad? Right, right. It's like, this is just a... Which is the line you have to walk, right? It's half a political event. I mean, fundamentally, do you have a sense of, like, how do you even make a joke in the age when there is no shame? Well, I think you still make the joke. There's still a punchline. Now, the shame part is about whether or not the joke can influence change. I don't think the correspondence dinner, I mean, we would have to check and do the research, but I don't, I don't know of any politician that got hit with a joke and was like, you know what, let me go ahead and reconsider my whole platform. Uh, Donald Trump? Yeah, well, he said, let me start a platform. Yeah. Right. But, like, to just... There's nothing I can... You think the, the Ron DeSantis jokes I got in the clip for change. tomorrow, you think that Ron DeSantis tomorrow's about, you know what, man, you're right. Go on and put the black history back in them books. <laughs> a glimmer of where this is going. I, I'm we here. would hope... <laughs> We, I saw you had that hope in your eye. You like you hope it was brief, to, it's and then like happen. a flame went it's out. He's fighting Mickey Mouse. Okay, <laughs> you know this he's is fighting Mickey Mouse. You can't change that person's mind with a joke. <laughs> it's possible. I'm raising my voice. No, I I'm love still. it. It's morning energy. We love it. We love energy. <laughs> all, all jokes, but I love your story too. I want our viewers to get to know you a little bit before they see you up there. The yeah. fact that you know. You were born here in New York, but then you grew up in Alabama. Yeah, I was born in New York. I grew up in Birmingham. My father was a radio journalist, but he deliberately embedded himself in pretty much any black conflicts that were going on. Black platoons in Vietnam, Vietnam, Soweto. Uh, He was in uh, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe now. Um, And then I got to college. Stuart Scott was my North Star for journalism. Mm. I wanted to be funny and talk about sports. Got down to college. Got, got in trouble. Apparently, you have to pay for clothes. 
When you go to the mall, you do not just get to leave with them. You have to give them money. But that, I did not. But that's what got me in a stand Because stand-up. that year you had that, that, um, that uh, FAM University let you, well, let you, gave you, gave you a year off to think suspension. about things. Yeah, you suspension is a word. That's when you started. Yeah, That's when you started this comedy, right? But to, but to the credit of Florida a University, they allowed me to come back and get their journalism yep. degree. And that, be, and that gave me... A double-edged sword because okay. now I'm a comic and I'm a journalist. I was doing radio, and the irony of it now is that as much as I didn't want to be like my father, topically speaking, that's literally what I do now is talk about okay. the world issues. I'm just a little funnier. It's poetic. Who are your targets for tomorrow night? Um, see, y'all. <laughs> I know what you're trying to ask me, and yeah. I'm trying to like answer if there's it without a brunette who's really into the, Alabama. The, the, like, yes, I'm gonna talk about what happened maybe. this week. I gotta talk about everything this week. Let Did me just say this week? there was a lot of stuff that happened this week. There were many things that happened this week, World and those things have to be discussed in a fair way, <clears throat> in a very fair way. Kevin McCarthy, I think, is bracing for that, yeah. so don't worry. Yeah. No, trust me, I'm not finna lose my job. I'm not trying to get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> Roy That's Wood the Jr. most important part of the correspondence dinner is leave employed. <laughs> <laughs> That's your goal. I leave employed. I love that. Roy Wood Jr., we're all going to be there. We cannot wait to see what you have prepared. I know you've been preparing really hard for this. So Thank you all. Can't wait. Thank you. And to see what those jokes are going to be, who his targets are. And President Biden also is going to be there. Make sure you tune in. That's tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern. CNN will be covering the White House correspondence dinner live here. You are a joy. Thank you My all. My friend. We can't wait. All right. 50, that means you can't make fun of me tomorrow night. 55 million people. <laughs> yeah, she's buttering them up. Across the South are racing, seriously, for really severe weather. What you can expect in the hours ahead. Russia's invasion of Ukraine triggered a flood of refugees. Many of them were pet owners who had to leave their dogs, their cats, their beloved pets behind for what they hoped would only be days. For two vet- veterinarians who specialized in exotic animal rescue, the situation led them to a new mission, caring for these beloved but abandoned pets. This week, CNN Hero salutes Ukraine's vet crew, Leonoid and Valentina Stoyanov. Anderson Cooper shares their story. A lot of people think that all this situation in Ukraine will be three, four days. So a lot of people just close animals in apartments, in houses, and think that everything will be fine. For more than a year now, the Stoyanovs have been rescuing and caring for dogs and cats by the hundreds in Ukraine. Despite the danger, they put their lives at risk, even driving to the front lines to vaccinate and feed animals. Russian army, a lot of times, shooting uh, our car, and uh, we have a lot of uh, holes. Each animal for us, it's like our family. The vet crew's work earned them support for millions on social media. They say it's all those encouraging messages that keep them going. A lot of people write us, guys, hold on, you are heroes. It's huge, huge support, and we are very grateful. Well, to get the full story on Ukraine's vet crew and to nominate your own CNN hero, go to cnnheroes.com. And a special thanks to Audie for joining us this morning at the Thank table. Thank you guys for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, a lot you of fun always make it happy. Yeah. Thank you, Audie. And thank you for joining us. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see you all tomorrow. We'll be in Washington at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. But, of course, the news continues right now with CNN News Central.
That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.